This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Violence has struck the nation's public school system once again. Within a week of the racially motivated attack that killed 10 shoppers at a grocery store in Buffalo, New York, an emotionally disturbed young man killed 19 children and two adults at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. Are these just isolated incidents or is violence and murder in the nation's schools on the increase? To learn more about an unhappy but fundamentally critical topic, I have with me today Daniel Hammond, a professor of education at the University of Oklahoma and author of a study of gun ownership rates, gun laws, and firearm incidents in American schools. He's pulled together the available data on the subject and he's willing to share it with us today. So thank you, Daniel, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate you having me on. Well, Daniel, your study of school violence uh, puts these contemporary tragedies in historical perspective. Are we seeing an increase in school violence in these kinds of incidents as you sort of feel when you read the media or the, the news media and the, or listen to it on the radio or the TV, uh, or, or is, it, is the picture more complicated than that? Yeah, there is a little bit of a debate out there, or at least there has been a debate about whether school gun incidents, school gun violence is on the rise or uh, basically staying the same or even declining. And some of it just depends on uh, which uh, time period you decide to look at. So some folks have looked at 10-year periods or 20-year periods, and you can draw uh, different conclusions based on the time period that you choose to look at. Uh, what I did was I looked at a 40-year period. It was about as far back as I could go. So I looked from 1980 to 2019. And what you actually see is during that period from 1980 to 2017, uh, school gun incidents kind of move around uh, at about 20 to 40 incidents. So they kind of move around within that, that range over time. But then in 2018, we see a pretty sharp rise in school gun incidents to really unprecedented levels. So well over 100 in incidents in 2018 and then well over 100 incidents in 2019. And all the other previous years over that 40-year period we're about in the range of 20 to 40 incidents. So um, in, in some sense, uh, both sides that are arguing, well, it's, gun incidents aren't changing much or they're changing a lot. Well, actually, in some sense, you could argue that, that both are sort of wrong, uh, depending on how you look at it. I hear, yeah, what I'm hearing you say, it was quite steady over most of this 40-year period, but in the period just before COVID, we didn't know COVID was coming in that period, just before COVID, there was a doubling or more than a doubling of these incidents. And also the number killed goes up by a spectacular uh, number as well, as I recall from reading your data. Yeah, that's right. So you might say, well, maybe the, the managers of these data started to track them in different ways, or maybe they're including incidents that really aren't too lethal. But if you look at the number of injured or killed victims, those are also pretty steady over the 40-year period, except 
in 2018 and 2019, right before the pandemic, where we see also, again, a sharp rise in the number of injured or killed victims of school gun violence. So there does appear to be, based on these descriptive data, uh, there, there does appear to be something going on. Now, then the pandemic happened. And so uh, we don't really have a good sense of what school shootings might have been over the past couple of years. Well, the education week does, now it's not the same data set that you're looking at. Let me ask you first about your data set, then we'll come back to this point. So your data set comes from the Homeland Security, is that right? Yeah, the, it's the Center for Homeland Security at the Naval Postgraduate School. And they and, collect systematically these data or they've gone back and dug it up. Is that what's happened? Yeah, both. And so I, I think it's widely considered one of the really the most comprehensive and largest uh, school shootings database that we have. There are a number of other school shootings databases that are out there, but I think this one in particular is good because uh, they, they really bring together multiple data sources uh, to try to, to, to create the database. They do a lot of cross-referencing. Uh, they include FBI statistics. They include uh, data from the U.S. Department of Education. They also, also take into account other existing databases uh, as well as other prominent media outlets. So it's, a, it's I think, uh, it's definitely one of the best databases, if not the best database that we have on this. Well, Education Week uh, updates this to the contemporary period, uh, and uh, I take it the the Homeland Security database that you're just talking about there hasn't updated it up to the contemporary period. It's ending in 2019. So, but they say, and it's and you know it's not comparable data probably because it's a different source, and I wouldn't probably to pretend a newspaper is as good as this uh, this official database, but. Uh, but they're but they're saying during the COVID years, 2020 and 2021, there was a remarkable downturn in which only makes sense. People were not going to school and everybody was closed down. And you know, we see a lot of statistics uh, of this kind uh, looking very favorable. Um, during uh, during this period of time, but now we're back out back in school. COVID's sort of more or less come to an end, and now we see. Are we seeing a spike again this year? Are we getting? If you project out what we've already seen in this 2022, are we in at risk of going right back to where we were? Well, that's that's exactly what I've been wondering. So, our 2018 and 2019 these unprecedented years are they anomalous or do they represent a new a new normal. And I don't think we really know because of COVID. I think also this academic year has made school uneven for a lot of students. So I don't think we have a good um, gauge of, of where we're at. It's probably going to take until next academic year to truly know where we're at. Although there is some evidence that once again, uh, school, school gun violence is, is on the rise as kids have uh, come back to in-person learning this year. Well, so um, some people in the media are talking about violence as contagious, and they point out that right after Buffalo, there were 10 incidents, maybe not in school, but incidents around the country involving violence. Um, and then, of course, Ovalde itself could be seen as perhaps a product of the Buffalo incident in some strange, weird way. So 
is there any evidence in your data set that these kinds of events are, are contagious? Is violence contagious? Well, that could be a way of explaining the 2018 and 2019 year spikes. There's also, I mentioned that incidents kind of trended over the 40 year period between 20 and 40 incidents, but you do see uh, within that period of time, you do see uh, spikes within that range as well. So it's possible. There is, of course, some anecdotal evidence that uh, school shooters are often often report be, having been influenced by other school shooters. And so I think it's, it is a possible explanation. Uh, and we do have some suggestive evidence that that happens, but I don't, I don't think it's uh, conclusive by any means. Well, one, some of the uh, arguments that go on out there is that maybe we should restrict the coverage of these events. Maybe we're, we're you know, feeding this violence by talking about it too much. It, I, I would hate to sort of interfere with free speech, but maybe is there any way we could ask the media to exercise restraint? Well, uh, that's a big question, Paul. Um, and uh, maybe, but I, I, I do think you raise a good point. So um, is there something to be said for uh, maybe uh, less coverage, for example, of the individual shooters and less, uh, for example, less on their, less uh, publicity related to their names and what they were doing so that you're not maybe lionizing them so much to other would-be shooters. I, I, I think that's possible. Uh, but difficult to do um, with, uh, I, I think difficult to do, of course, there's always gonna be pressure for organizations to kind of present and get clicks and, and uh, provide information if there's a public that wants specific forms of it. So I, I don't know, I, I think it could be, could be difficult to do. Yeah, you know, baseball does this. They, if, if somebody runs naked across the field, they can't get their picture on television because they've told the TV guys not to cover it. So uh, uh, I don't know if that slowed down um, nude running across baseball fields, but uh, but yeah, it's been attempted, but this would be much more difficult here. Um, so let me ask about uh, something quite different. And that is, are these shooters coming from broken families in the Uvalde, Texas case, the father was working in another town. The mother seems very emotionally distressed. Uh, he's living with his grandmother. He shoots his grandmother. Uh, one fellow student said the uh, shooter was self-abusive and abusive towards other prior to the incident. Um, so is, is this often the case with these mass shootings? Yeah, and that that's primarily, I think, in the past how researchers have tried to understand the motives of shooters and why they occur. They've gone back into their family histories to try to see what might have happened. And oftentimes what you find is that uh, the school shooters uh, were uh, had very difficult and challenging family circumstances. So uh, broken families, uh, physical abuse, child abuse. Um, oftentimes the school shooters have a history of psychological problems as well. Of course, the, many of these things can kind of coincide. So it's, it's difficult, it's very difficult to pull out what the most salient causal factor might be because these things kind of go, go together in many, of, in many of the cases of these uh, school shooters when folks have kind of looked into their, to their histories. But yes, uh, 
family, various types of family challenges are evident uh, among many types of school shooters. It's very rare that you have a school shooter that um, grew up in a, in, a, in, a, in a stable home, let's say. But then on the other hand, there's lots of homes that have, have children that go through experiences or behavioral problems, uh, not unlike these, but they don't, they're not shooters. So if you followed every single person who's a potential shooter, wouldn't you be just, it would be impossible for the school systems to do that. Well, I, potentially. So the, the US Secret Service and FBI US and the, the federal government did a study of a number of different mass shooters uh, and uh, mass school shooters. And basically what they, what they said was, there's really no, they couldn't identify, they could identify a range of different factors that coincided with uh, a shooting in the, in the history of a, of a shooter, but they couldn't identify a single salient factor that they could pull out and say, well, this is the thing that actually caused it. So I, I, I think, uh, yes, to answer your question, yes, I think it would be difficult for, for schools to uh, be able to deal with all the various issues that they might have to deal with if they were seeking to be proactive in these situations. Very challenging. And it's, it's worth also stating, and, and uh, researchers who look at school shootings will often say, well, everyone needs to keep in mind that statistically these events are very, very rare. And I, I think, yes, statistically they are. And that makes it a challenge also to kind of pull out which, which factors might be underlying them or what's really causing them, because statistically they are, they are rare. Of course, today, no one's feeling like school shootings are, are rare. And certainly the parents in, in Texas, uh, the, the community in Texas are, are certainly not feeling that way. And you could argue that the nation as a whole is not feeling that way, that way right now, because really uh, these shootings obviously have a direct, have direct consequences for those who are involved at the school level. And it's, it's, they're, they're just unthinkable tragedies, but they also, I think there's, there's some evidence that they have a pretty considerable effect on the national psyche and, and confidence in our, our institutions when these events happen. Well, now the safety officers is another solution that's out there. But in Uvalde, Texas, they had a safety officer and, and that officer either didn't do his job or her job or else, I don't know, uh, you know who this person was, uh, but it's, it's, can they really deter a determined shooter or because the, the guard is going to be there and the shooters could case the joint and figure out how to get around them. Uh, what's your thinking about the value of the security officer? Yeah, so of course, a, a school resource officer is, has many roles, not just uh, to prevent uh, a school shooting or a school, uh, an attacker. Um, but I think in this case, in Evaldi, my understanding and the, some, of, some of the information is still coming to light, but my understanding is that there is an exchange of fire. So I, there's different ways, uh, an exchange of fire between the school resource officer and the attacker. So there's different ways of, I guess, you could, you could think about it in different ways. One might be, well, what might have happened had the school resource officer not been there exchanging fire, forcing the attacker to be barricaded in a single classroom? 
would there have been more death potentially? Um, or another way of looking at it as well, the school resource officer was not effective in, in preventing this. And so we just don't know the, the counterfactual. And I, um, I'm hesitant to, to make any firm conclusions one way or another because of that. But I think there definitely will be some questions about security and the technology that's being used to try to prevent these attacks because um, it, they, they, they may be working in some way, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it because the attacks continue to happen. But now, you know, these mass shootings or, or some inexplicable shootings are not the main cause of school violence. Other factors are play in. Can you describe in, from your uh, study just what other factors are in play when, um, when somebody is killed in a, in a, in a school? So from the, the perspective of the, of the shooter or the school site? The school, well, just the whole range. I mean, because I think you you look at all the all the causes of school shootings and 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 uh, gang violence, for example. I think is number one on the list. Isn't more people dying of gang violence at school than anything else? Yeah, well, that's right. So these types of rampage style school shootings, which are um, very tragic and often for the right reasons get a lot of attention nation nationally um, are less common than other types of school gun violence, like uh, the uh, incidents that arise from gang or criminal activity or escalations of disputes. So there's other other forms of school gun violence that occur, and there's different reasons behind those those forms of school gun violence. So I, I think, Paul, that that's a great point, uh, because you might think about prevention and response strategies uh, for gun violence that occurs because of gang activity, let's say, versus uh, gun violence that occurs from a rampage shooting. They, they arise uh, plausibly from very different circumstances. And of course, this, this kind of relates to some of, the some of the prominent prevention strategies that are out there. So a lot of uh, scholars and even policymakers in this area have been promoting threat assessment and the creation and, and the idea that schools would create threat assessment teams that would be proactive about assessing rumors or social media or various disturbances within the school and to try to get out in front of those to uh, prevent attacks um, like a school shooting. Of course, with threat assessment, it may, may very well be effective in deterring or reducing school shootings but I'm not sure that we know if it actually works to do that. And of course, in Uvalde, the school where the attack occurred, there was a threat assessment team. Now, uh, I'm not saying that the threat assessment team didn't do their job. I'm, I'm just not sure how they would have been able to get out in front of the attack that occurred. So uh, I think the Uvalde shooting, of course, it's, it's just such a terrible tragedy, but it also, again, it raises lots of questions about current prevention strategies and their effectiveness. Right now, the, the federal government uh, has spent a lot of money and invested a lot of money in technology, physical barriers, and the development of, of threat assessment as a way of preventing these things. But um, I'm not sure that we have good evidence, solid enough evidence that uh, to what extent this, this stuff works. And again, we just, I'm not, I, I'm raising the question here. I'm not saying it doesn't work but I don't know that we have good enough evidence to say that it does work. 
Well, so what percentage of all the deaths that occur in school as a result of violent action over the period of time that you studied are actually this kind of event, this mass shooting or, or inexplicable shooting kind of uh, event as distinct from all the other things that can happen? As I recall, it was less than 20%. Yeah, so I believe, so if you look at over the 40 year period of analysis that I did, uh, we have about over 2000 uh, injured or uh, killed victims in schools. And I believe that mass school shootings or uh, school shootings where there's uh, a rampage style attack account for um, about a third of the, the number of injured or killed victims. So we have, we have about 1,275 incidents over the 40 year period, over 2,000 injured or killed victims. And indeed the, the, the mass school shootings are much more deadly and have a, a, a much higher number of average injured, injured or killed victims than other, other school shootings, but they don't account for uh, the, all of the different uh, or, the, or the total number. I think they're about a third of the total. They're about a third of the total. And, and uh, there's lots of other things that, that go on in schools that uh, lead to violence and, and, and children or young people dying. So uh, is this more of a high, I mean, this was an elementary school, but that's pretty unusual, isn't it? Isn't it more likely to happen in a high school? It's more likely to happen in a middle school and a high school. Uh, they're about they're about equally as likely. Um, so elementary school is is where these events are less likely to occur, but middle and high school is where they occur most. Well, then there's been the talk about uh, this often happens in isolated rural communities or places that you would seem to have a an integrated community, not a community that is in distress. Uh, so what's your data say about that? Yeah, so it depends on the type of school gun violence. So, and I think most of your listeners, Paul, will, I think, have a good sense of this based on media reports. So school gun violence that arises from criminal activity or uh, different types of relational disputes. Let, let's take, so if you have school gun violence, let's take criminal activity, which is a common form of school gun violence. That's much more likely to occur in large cities. Whereas a rampage style school shooting is much more likely to uh, take place in a, in a small city or in a rural area. So, um, and, and much less likely to occur in a large city. So it really depends on the type of school gun violence that occurs. Well, it's sort of interesting because the Buffalo incident there was not school. I guess the rampage in a, in a big city, a rampager could go to lots of different places, whereas the school may be a more, that's the one place where people congregate in, in a small rural community. Maybe, maybe that's what attracts rampages to the school. That certainly that's one possibility. And of course, I would say after a small town or a rural area, when it comes to the rampage style school shootings, uh, suburbs are next in line. So that's the next 
place that they're likely to occur. So uh, same issue though. There, it, you may have suburbs where that, that's where you have the largest number of people congregating. And so it might make a, um, uh, might be a logical place for a school shooter to go if they want to uh, uh, indiscriminately kill. Yeah. So now your study in particular looks at gun ownership and school violence and regulations of guns. This is incredibly controversial. And uh, what are your, what is, what do you show in your data? What's, what's the effect? Uh, can we prevent this from happening by restricting access to guns? Yeah, so I'll, let's start with uh, the state gun ownership rate and school gun violence. So it seems logical because the US, the US, the United States has the most guns per person in the world. We also have the most school shootings. So it seems reasonable that the guns are at least contributing in some way to school gun violence. Um, when, when you try to estimate this or look at this empirically, it's a little more difficult. So over time, over my 40 year period of analysis, the, the average state gun ownership rate for the, for the country was about 51%. Over that 40 year period, it's declined to about 39%. That's the average gun ownership rate for states. Uh, a number of states have seen massive drops in their average gun ownership rate over that period of time. Uh, for example, Georgia, Nevada, Texas, Alaska, they've seen drops of, of greater than 20%. Uh, and most states actually have seen declines. There's only a, a handful of states that have seen small increases and they surprisingly are clustered in, in the Northeast. Um, so um, that's the first thing to kind of note. And so states- Okay, so let me yeah. interrupt you on that, uh, yeah. Daniel, because I, I, something in the back of my head is telling me, okay, my dad had a shotgun and I don't, you know, the shotgun, and I actually used it one day to, when I tried to hit a pheasant and failed. But uh, so, yeah, so rifles and shotguns, you know, were commonplace in the past, uh, less so today, but assault weapons may be on the increase. I don't think anybody believed that back when I was a child and that you could have as an assault weapon. Uh, so maybe it's the kind of weapon that counts, not just whether you own a weapon or not. Well, that's a good point. So in, in my study, I don't look at whether uh, the types of weapons have changed and how that may be influencing things. There is some evidence in the data. There, so there's quite a bit of missingness. We don't always know uh, what type of gun was used in, a, in an incident of school gun violence, but most of the time, it's a single handgun that's used in school gun violence, almost always. The one exception, of course, are mass school shootings. In, in the case of mass school shootings, it's about one third of the time that a single handgun is used. And so you'll see um, cases like in Ovalde where an AR-15 is used, um, as well as some of the other um, recent tragedies that have occurred really over the past decade where lots of children have been killed. Uh, in those cases, the attackers had AR-15s, which are very deadly types of assault rifles. So, Paul, that's a great point. That may very well be the case that it's it's we need to look a little bit more closely at the types of weapons that are being used uh, in particular types of attacks. 
So, so it goes into this point earlier that there's two, at least two major kinds of shootings that take place. One is this mass shooting that gets massive attention. And the other is this sort of intended killing of specific individuals, which might be criminal related or gang related or, or uh, uh, revenge related. And then you might have a different kind of gun is used, right? A, a, a handgun is, is used. Is that is that possible? Yeah, that definitely seems to be the case based on the evidence that we have. And the the gang related or criminal related shootings also seem to happen a lot faster. That probably is intuitive to your listeners as well. So those those incidents happen really quick and then they're over. And so the reason why I mentioned that because it relates to prevention and response. Uh, with the mass school shootings, they also happen quickly, uh, but they're, the average time uh, for those types of incidents is, is much higher than in the case of, uh, say, a school gun violence related to gang activity. Well, then you also have uh, a look at gun, uh, gun laws and, and the effect of, of changing the law. And I think you have six states which you identified a change in the law and then you didn't really find that the change in the law had much of an effect. Am I summarizing your analysis correctly? Yeah, basic. So um, after I looked at state gun ownership rates to see if there was a yeah, looking within states to see if as gun ownership decreased within a state, maybe school gun violence decreased, didn't really find much there. Um, so then I turned to look and see, well, maybe, maybe there are certain regulations that might be associated with declines in school gun violence. So I looked at um, <clears throat> uh, states that have that implemented or adopted legislation that required uh, safety training for handgun purchases or had a minimum age of purchase at 21 years of age for, for someone to be able to purchase a gun, as well as other child access prevention laws where um, <clears throat> gun owners are re required um, and can be held liable if they don't uh, um, keep their guns out of the hands of, of children. And so I looked at those three types of laws because they relate to um, youth potentially gaining access to a gun and, and, and uh, uh, participating in some form of school gun violence on school grounds. And yeah, so in the states that I looked at that have those regulations, uh, the models that I ran uh, did not I looked at them in various types of ways, looked at, looked at the changes over time, and didn't really find a lot of evidence that those regulations were related to uh, declines in school gun violence. Now, I, I, there's a major caveat here. This is very hard to model within a single state because, again, statistically, although um, in some sense school gun violence feels like it's happening very frequently, statistically, it's not. And so I did not detect anything, uh, but that I, I don't think that necessarily allows me to conclude well that these these regulations just did not work. I just did not find any evidence that they did. So, but now you look at each state separately. What if you put them all together, and all six of them, and looked at it? Maybe then you'd get more observations. Could that would that have changed your results? Do you think? Yeah, I, I performed a number of robustness checks and like the type that you're suggesting and really didn't find anything consistent. Um, in, in fact, in some states, um, you'll see um, declines, small declines. In other states, you'll see small increases. 
uh, after some of these regulations are put in place. And so it, it's, it's worth noting, again, it's difficult to detect statistical differences in this case, but it's also, there's also a lot happening uh, in the background when it comes to a school shooting. So there could be many other um, underlying factors influencing school gun violence that my analyses just didn't pick up. So that's an issue to, to note as well. Well, thank you, Daniel. This has been an illuminating discussion on a topic a lot of us would want to avoid talking about, but cannot ignore. So thank you very much for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Paul. I hope we can look into this further and find a way to, to solve this problem. I have been speaking with Daniel Hammond, a professor of education at the University of Oklahoma and author of a study of gun ownership rates, gun laws, and firearm incidents in American schools. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.